the question was, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? You know, what I found like with the fast growing companies that you know, a pretty high percentage of people said, I would be very disappointed without this product. And so it's a really kind of good early indicator. Okay, people do want this product. Now it's an execution challenge. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaSDoc. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be chatting to this week's guest about what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today. We're counting down to SaaSDoc EMEA, which is taking place in October from the 12th to the 15th. It's gonna be the most actionable online conference for B2B SaaS founders, executive and investors in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Fancy joining us? Use the code SASREVOLUTION for 20% off your ticket. Hope to see you there. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. Sean Ellis, author of Hack and Growth and co-creator of Go Practice. Welcome, Sean. Thanks, Alex. Really good to be on with you. Yeah, great to have you on the podcast for the first time. We've been, we've been running uh, SaaS Revolution show for five years now, and I've been following uh, your career, growth, uh, growth Hackers, and uh, read your books, uh, Hack and Growth, which you mentioned uh, in the intro. Uh, so really pleased to have you on the podcast for the first time, pick your brains you know, for the community. So, so pleased that you could, uh, could make it. Absolutely. Um, stuff and I can, I can i can hear my my dog betty she's pleased as well because she she started to <laughs> uh, she I'm, started. I'm waiting for mine to start barking too uh, joys of working from home indeed indeed so look look sean um you know i know you very well i think the i mean even though we haven't spoken but you know from from following you in the, the companies that you've been working from uh for those of, members of the audience perhaps that don't know you uh, tell us a little bit about, about yourself and who is sean ellis so there's uh there's kind of an interesting philosophical side to that question. I just got back from a meditation retreat, so I'll try to not go down that path. Um, but the, uh, the, the high level of who I am. Um, so I, I spent most of my career uh, building and, and growing companies. So uh, started in the mid nineties, invested kind of everything that I had um, just a year out of school, but I'd, I'd been in a sales job that where I made some pretty good commissions and put it all into an internet company in 1995. So that turned out to be a pretty good, pretty good investment for the first one. And uh, that was uproar.com where I ran uh, marketing from kind of customer zero through a NASDAQ IPO filing. We, we built, Uproar was a game company that we built to be uh, number, I think it was seven or eight overall in the world in terms of total usage time. And we were the number one game site. And so that was sort of how I got started. And a lot of it was just, figuring it out as I went. I wasn't sort of classically trained in marketing. Um, and then we sold that business to Vivendi Universal and uh, same group of guys started a company called Log Me In after that. And uh, Log Me In, I, I ran marketing from customer zero through a NASDAQ filing. Six months after I left Log Me In, I joined Dropbox as the first head of uh, marketing and it was an interim role. So the reason it was interim was that I learned across the two companies that I'd spent about 10 years in that my most important contributions were in the first six months. So I really wanted to uh, get good at that, that stage. You know, if, if that's the most important time and in, in uh, a 10 year period, I only got to do it twice. I wanted to try to figure out a formula where I could do it multiple times. So um, I did Dropbox, I did Eventbrite and Lookout. So those, those are uh, three companies that all reached that, that unicorn status and obviously Dropbox and, uh, went went well beyond that, and even uh, Logni In actually sold um, 
back to private equity recently for about $4.3 billion. Uh, then Hacking Growth was really writing uh, everything that I learned about that. My, my co-author on the book, uh, Morgan Brown, uh, has worked in growth at Facebook. Now he's VP of growth at, at uh, Shopify. And so our combined experiences in, in the book, um, it, we, we got a really good publisher behind it and it's published in 16 languages. And so the, the book's done really well. And that's really fed kind of what I've been doing more recently of, of just, you know, keynotes and workshops and, and um, trying, trying to just help high impact companies uh, or, or companies that have valuable solutions provide a lot of impact. And so that's, that's what I've been doing more in recent years. And then um, also launched a, a simulator for learning growth with um, a, uh, so it's called Go Practice with um, Oleg Yakubinkov, who was a former data scientist from, from Facebook and, that we we only launched that about a month and a half ago, sort of a re recreated with with both of us, and so that's that's also been a lot of my focus recently. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. And obviously, again, um, you know, impressive, uh, a very impressive CV there, and you know, various sort of companies running your own companies. Uh, now you're doing it again. Uh, you know, we go go practice as a, as a co-creator. I've not really heard of uh, you know a simulator. Uh, sort of right. like software for like learning, you know, uh, uh, skill. I, I guess, I guess, why not, right? Uh, but simulator yeah. for learning growth. Tell us a little bit about why you, you decided to to go into, into this project and launch this company. Right. Yeah. It is. It is really different from anything that's out there. Um, I so so Oleg actually created it first for the Russian market, and then and then translated it into English and. Um, had it available and I came across it and was super excited about it conceptually, but I saw some areas where it could be improved. And um, so I, you know, worked out something with Oleg where we would partner on it. And the, the whole idea is that um, I, when I look at all of the growth that I learned, I mentioned, you know, in 1996, there weren't really books to read on growth. So I, I, I learned by doing. And when I talked to everybody else who's, who's had a good track record in growth, most of them also learn by doing. And so instead of having a course that's all around the theory of growth, we, we wanted to, to do something where you actually, so think of like a flight simulator, but you're put into a situation where you're responsible for growing a business and it's, there's a storyline through it. So you come in as a junior analyst and the product has just done a soft launch and you're you're analyzing the data so it's actually built on top of data in amplitude and you're running queries and making decisions and there's a whole storyline that ultimately you get promoted to a chief product officer and you're you know essentially helping to iterate the product to product market fit and and build a a really valuable company but um you know even just going through what oleg had built my data skills probably tripled. And data is such an important part of growth. I didn't have product management skills really before that. And so it really strengthened my product management skills. And I think what, what I'm finding is that to be successful in a data analyst role, in a marketing role, in a product role, in a growth role, you actually have to be good at all of those. And that's pretty tough. But, but with this type of course, I think you can really build the, the skills and strength to be good at all of them. And so, yeah, I'm excited about it. We've We've actually, so if you take what he's had on the Russian side and, and the US side, 7,000 students have gone through it um, and, uh, and the, the relaunch has been, has been awesome. So we, and oh, the other thing we're doing is running it as a cohort. So each week 
we get together and do a deep discussion. So yesterday we had all the people in this cohort doing a, a full deep dive on retention and, and how, how to model retention and how to forecast growth and, and retention cohorts and benchmarks for different types of industries and, and different products. And um, so I, I just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun working on it. I've, I've enjoyed it. Sounds like a lot of fun, and I'd be—I'm uh, sure there are probably many CEOs, and I'd be uh, very curious to for taking it uh, uh, as well. Uh, but um, how long does it take? Let's say you, you, you mentioned, let's say, that from a junior analyst to a chief product officer from the simulation. Like, how long mm-hmm. does it take you to kind of you know get get through that uh, on a simulation? Yeah, so I mean, it's self-paced um, if you don't want to go through the cohort. So the cohort is is basically twelve weeks, and so it's 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 a pretty intensive hard course. I think a lot of people sort of think, oh, I'm gonna go after hours, crack a beer, sit down and start working on this. And they think, oh crap, I gotta do this with like fresh morning brain, not with a beer in my hand. And so it's about an hour a day for for 12 weeks. Um, you know, it depends. Like certain certain sections, if you have really good Excel skills, you're gonna get through it a lot faster than if you're Excel maybe is a little weaker and you don't, you don't know the formulas to, to do some calculations, but it's, it's very data heavy. And, um, but you know, that's, that's what's required to be successful today in most businesses. And so learning those data skills is, is super valuable. You, you led marketing and growth, as you said, at you know, five different uh, unicorns, uh, you know, Dropbox, Logmi, and Uproar, Eventbrite, Lookout. Uh, what are the biggest similarities that you, you've seen across those and biggest differences you've noticed when scaling growth with these companies? Yeah, so, so it is interesting because there's quite a bit of variety in the types of companies I was working on. So, so game community for the first one, uh, SaaS companies for LogMeIn and, and Dropbox, and even, even Eventbrite, SaaS, and then Lookout uh, mobile security app and um, that you know, so you would think, okay, they're, they're all going to be pretty different. In fact, after I left Uproar and was kind of figuring out what I was going to do next, you know, a lot of headhunters were saying, oh, we just don't have any, any game companies. I'm like, I'm not even a gamer. I just, you know, it was a really elegant business. I like the gaming side of things. And so I think what I've learned on the similarity side is that there's, there's kind of a set of principles that govern growth in almost any type of business, at least in an engagement business. If it's purely a transaction business, it might be a little bit different. But if it's, you know, like maybe like a, a dating app where once you make the match, ideally they go and get married and, and you never see them again. Um, Tinder maybe changes that <laughs> dynamic a little bit. But, um, you know, for, for most of these companies, it's, it's about acquisition, you know, converting someone on the must-have use case that that ultimately is going to lead to long-term retention. And so how do I drive that engagement and retention? And how do I how do I drive referral off of that? And so that's that's pretty similar across almost every business is is just being able to understand value and map your value delivery engine and then have a rapid test learn process for accelerating growth in the business. And so you know, even like I haven't worked on e-commerce, but I came across a quote uh, by, uh, by that, I put it up on my wall. So Jeff Bezos at Amazon, um, our success at Amazon is a function of how many experiments we do per year, per month, per day. And so that, that's definitely something that I found as well is that you don't learn until you experiment. And the more experiments that you run, the more learning that you get and generally the more growth that you get. And obviously you, you need to be constrained by 
statistical significance. And if you experiment in high leverage areas, that's going to make a bigger difference. So I would say the similarities are, are much bigger than the differences, but some of the differences, I, I think, um, you know, part of it, like uproar, I was, I was making it up as I went along, just kind of, kind of figuring it out. Um, by the time I got to Dropbox, I had much more of kind of a, a playbook in mind of, okay, these are the, these are the things we need to do. And this is the order in which we need to do them. And so I was really deliberate. In fact, it was in my contract that one of our key goals was to create a culture of growth and experimentation at the business. So company-wide and yeah, it was, it was cool at the growth hackers conference, maybe two years ago, I introduced their worldwide head of digital marketing. And one of the first things that she said to me that really separates Dropbox than almost, from almost any other company is that everyone in the company takes ownership of growth. And so I think that is, you know, that, that's something that I've kind of strived for ever since. And, um, and it's interesting. So by the time I left Dropbox, it was, I was there for six months. It was another nine months before they brought in a new marketing head. It took them that long to kind of find the right person. And their experimentation didn't slow down at all. Their growth curve trajectory stayed really strong. And um, in fact, they announced a couple of years ago that they were the fastest SaaS business to reach the $1 billion revenue run rate. And I think it was just a function of everybody knowing their role in growth, pulling in the same direction and just being really, really united around, you know, test learn process to accelerate growth in the business. Um, Lookout would have been probably one of the hardest ones that I did. Um, and, and so one of the things that I always said, like, if, if nobody wants this product, I don't care how good I am at marketing, I'm going to fail. And so I, I came up with a question pretty early on, kind of in between Dropbox and, and Log Me In. I was working on a company called Zobni for, for a little bit. And uh, the, the question was, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? And you know, what I found like with the fast growing companies that, that you know, a pretty high percentage of people said, I would be very disappointed without this product. And so it's a really kind of good in, early indicator. Okay, people do want this product. Now it's an execution challenge. And um, so I went in to, to look out and I'd actually committed to work with them for six months. And I ran that question and only 7% of the people came back and said they'd be very disappointed without the product where, you know, I was looking at 10 times that on my previous uh, project that I worked on with, with Eventbrite, it was about 10 times that. And so I'm like, oh crap, I probably should have asked this question before I committed to six months, but we were able to move that to 40% in two weeks. So kind of kind of crazy, but the what we did was we studied the seven percent who said they'd be very disappointed without the product. We learned their use case. We learned what the key value that they got from that use case was. We we repositioned on that, and then we streamlined the onboarding to the experience that really quickly delivered on that benefit. So we set the right expectations. So set a promise of the right experience that would and benefit that would be delivered, and then really work to get people to that. And so just surveying each new cohort of, of users that, that came through. We were 40% in two weeks. And then six months later, when I, when I left the company, it was up to 60%. And a couple of years later, they announced funding at a billion dollar plus valuation. So I think you know, being able to really tap into what makes a product valuable is, is absolutely critical to driving long-term growth in the business.
first with that last point around you know asking that question how would you feel if we took you know we took the product if we were no longer able to use the products right and mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, a question that you know certainly some smart SaaS companies and, and many use to kind of gauge whether they found product market fit sort of yep. these days kind of like almost like a, a, a benchmark right but what what percentage do you need to to, to kind of have to realize if you do have product market fit uh, or not uh, and then how often you, you, you use an example in terms of that you, you survey or ask that question a number of times in a short period of time how often should SaaS companies really be asking that question yeah so so one you know a couple a couple things so um I think retention cohorts are actually a better measure of product market fit than this question is. The problem is with retention cohorts, you don't actually know the why behind why people keep using it. So when you ask this question, you're able to see, you're able to hone in on the people who say they would be very disappointed and learn everything you can about them. But what I've historically found is that around 40% of users when around 40% of users say they would be very disappointed without the product, I could effectively grow those products. But what's interesting, if you, if you actually look at from a retention cohort perspective, which is probably more telling, and you say, okay, that, that would suggest that like 40% is the right retention cohort. But if you actually look at successful companies, you know, for, for um, Netflix, it's about 20%. Of, of their uh, mobile users anyway, become long-term retained. Um, for a company like Instagram, it's, it's 40%. Um, you know, other, other products are going to be higher. Um, Calm, which is, you know, a billion dollar app is only like two or 3% long-term retained. So I do think, you know, a little bit is, is th- there's probably more nuance than, than the 40% that I usually talk about. I just, you know, to, to me, I think that what, what's important is that companies should, should set a target and work for that target. And then from that point say, okay, we probably are in a position where we can grow this business. The benefit also of having it as a survey question is that it's more of a leading indicator. If you, if you say, okay, I need to, I need to make sure that I have really strong six months, six month retention cohorts. What do you do during those six months? Do you bring in a batch of users and then wait six months before you do anything? Or do you uh, bring those, those users in, track the retention cohorts, and then try to grow that business? So either one of those is probably not the right choice. So being able to ask people in that cohort how they would feel if they could no longer use the product gives you kind of an early indicator if they're likely to stick around and use the product. But, but so, yeah, I do think, I do think, so, and then the, the other question you asked was sort of the frequency of asking that question. So first, you probably shouldn't be asking the same people the question over and over again. So it's really, you know, sampling your users. How often should you do that? I would actually do it for an early stage business with every single release. So every release, new batch of users on that release, see what the change is. Um, and then for, you know, and, and, or if you made a major positioning update or some, something that you would expect that, that could drive some change. And then, um, you know, for, for established businesses, you might be able to, to do it once every six months. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people think of product market fit as primarily being a startup thing. But, you know, if you, if you take like some of the old video rental companies or, you know, things that, uh, 
things, you know, even like taxi companies that, um, you know, at one point they probably had great product market fit and then the dynamics of the market change. And so even if their product doesn't change that much, the, the, the alternative products change. And so you may slip out of product market fit. So the more that you monitor that, the more that you can hopefully refine product market fit and not, not have the market leave you behind. On, on the earlier point around creating a, a culture of growth, um, I mean that could be a whole other you know podcast topic, which, which we which we won't do uh, uh, certainly uh, today. And I think uh, actually Sastock Amir, we've got Dylan Field, the CEO of Sigma, talking about uh, I- I- exactly that, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Um, uh, but like, so you mentioned that at Dropbox, uh, everybody kind of own growth, or it was something that you you helped kind of bring in, right? Uh, and actually made, made me think when you were saying that. Um, I remember that with Stripe, for instance, uh, that, you know, a few years ago, I was trying to look for the right person on Stripe to sell sponsorships <laughs> for, for SaaS stock, right? Yeah. And everybody on LinkedIn was growth at Stripe, growth at Stripe. And I was <laughs> like, don't they have any like marketing, like, you know, somebody field marketing or anything like that? It, it, you yeah. know, it's driving me crazy. But that kind of like penny just kind of dropped when you were talking about that. But, you, you know, there's Dropbox and there's Stripe and there's two like huge companies, huge valuations right now. They have a culture of growth, but should every SaaS company have this culture of growth or do you have to be a specific type of SaaS company? I think, I mean, so it's really the question of what is growth and, you know, to me, growth is impact really. Like at at the end of the day, I create a solution for people who have a problem or have a need. And if I create the world's best solution and it doesn't reach any of the people who have that need, the impact is zero. And so Impact happens when the right solution gets to the right people. And so who doesn't play a role in either building the right solution or getting it to the right people? Almost, I mean, you might say, okay, finance doesn't, but even finance does in some sense that they're, you know, funding the efforts. They're, they're, they're funding the teams that, that do the efforts. Um, maybe legal doesn't, but, you know, they can, they can create a lot of bureaucracy in being able to run a test learn process. And so really everyone does play a role. They don't need to carry a growth title, but I think one of the, one of the breakthroughs that helps companies work together effectively around growth is just, you know, coming up with a metric that really captures that impact. And so in the growth world, we, we call that a North star metric. And so for uh, a company like, um, Uber, it's, it's weekly rides. You know, they, they know every time someone takes a ride in an Uber, a driver made some money and a rider got where they needed to go. So instead of optimizing for app downloads or rider signups or driver signups, all of those are submetrics of this weekly rides metric. And so, you know, that's, that's something that they report across the table. And so on my podcast, the, the breakout growth podcast, I interview heads of, uh, of growth or even CEOs, a lot of companies and almost, and, and all of them are really fast growing companies and almost all of them, whether they call it a North star metric or not, are, have, have a single metric that everyone in the company is working toward. And I, I think that's, that's when, when, you know, the opposite of everyone pulling in the same direction is, is that kind of siloed organization where, my, my metrics that I'm trying to grow maybe are like leads on the marketing side. And then the sales side is a lead to sale ratio or an average transaction size. And, and, you know, the more leads I push in, I'm going to maybe bring that average down. And so you get, you get these kind of like tensions that exist 
where if instead everyone is thinking of themselves as a role in moving the impact metric, it's a lot easier for teams to work together effectively in doing that. And then the next kind of piece to get everyone on the same page is, is having a shared view of what the engine looks like that moves that metric. And so if you can kind of collaboratively design that, and that's what I do in a lot of my workshops is I come up with the metric, work with a team to collaboratively design the engine that moves that metric. And it's, it's less about designing, I guess, but it's more collaboratively understand the engine. But when you have everyone on the same page around how that works, it's just a lot easier to get everyone working together to improve it. What are your thoughts on growth at all costs, which we, we've seen a lot of certainly in SaaS companies you know, in the past, maybe some uh, uh, still uh, today, uh, versus mm-hmm. sustainable growth, which we're hearing a lot more about in, in 2020? Yeah, I think, you know, so for me, I've, I've always been about sustainable growth. Like it, for, for me, I'm always constrained by what is my return on investment, even at times when, when other companies were not doing that. So, you know, in the late 90s, where it was like, if you were profitable, there was something wrong with you. We, uh, we, we had the lowest customer acquisition cost of any publicly traded company for a free registered user. We were like $2.00. Yahoo was considered one of the best at the time. They were about $30 for a free registered user. I mean, actually, I think we may have been $4, but we, we were still just a fraction of what everybody else was doing. And we had television advertising. We, did, we had some things that, that pushed that average up quite a bit. Um, but, you know, so, so and then even with, with Log Me In, we were cash flow positive from kind of the minute that we tried to scale that business and, and stayed cash flow positive. Dropbox, the same thing, was cash flow positive for, for most of its scaling. And so, you know, that's, that's to, to me, economic constraints are a good thing. They actually can help you grow faster because the, the problem is when you're not kind of constrained by the economics, someone comes along with an opportunity that says, I can give you 20 million people. And you suddenly kind of look at it like, oh gosh, I don't know if I'd be wasting my money on those 20 million people. And so it's, it, it kind of like uh, freezes you if, you're, if your growth at all costs, where if you know what your economic constraints are, then you run as fast as you can within those economic constraints. Um, if you, the, the one exception that I would say, and I just haven't worked in, in really in that environment, is a um, real network effect business where it may be a winner take all. Um, but even like in that case, I think like Uber versus Lyft, we're seeing that it's not really a winner takes all. So it's, it's pretty rare that it's a winner takes all anyway. Um, so I, yeah. And then the, then the other thing that I, I would say from a, if, if you're investing in growth and you're doing it on an ROI positive uh, a, approach and you've got yourself a payback window. So at LogMeIn, our payback window was three months. We wanted to be fully paid back. And then everything else was profit after that third month. We were, we were able to cycle a million dollars a month on advertising with that three-month payback. Um, the, but ultimately, at LogMeIn and pretty much every other company I worked on, the majority of users came through word of mouth. And so in addition to that three-month payback on, on tracked paid acquisition, we had amazing organic growth because it was really about building a flywheel around understanding how people get value from the product, getting a lot of the right people to that valuable experience. And you naturally unlock a lot of word of mouth with that. So I think at, at, at uh, LogMeIn, we were about 80% word of mouth. Dropbox with all the kind of viral mechanisms and everything else that was there, word of mouth dominated 
you know, any of the kind of collaborative spreading that was in, in Dropbox as well. And so I see that on almost every company. If, you're, if your growth engine is around getting the right people to the right experience, usually that's a, that's a big multiplier on anything you're doing to drive growth. So I'm, I'm all about sustainable growth. And that's actually my, my topic at the conference. Speaking of uh, of growth engines, before we um, we, we talk about uh, your talk at, at Sasso Um what would you say the most important elements for for startups who are just getting about building their their growth engine? So I've touched on some of them. So I, I would say that uh, you know product market fit is is absolutely critical. You cannot sustainably grow without product market fit, and um, and that's best represented by your ability to retain the users that you've acquired. You're not going to retain everybody. If you, if you lose everybody though, if you essentially, you know, after a certain period of time, every single person you acquired disappears, you cannot grow that business in the long term. So you need to be able to have long-term sustained retention of a percentage of every group of people that you acquire and whether that's 20% or 40%. So some, some of the examples that I gave you, that can be all over the board. So you need to figure out kind of what the right pattern is for your business. Um, Another thing is just, you know, I, I've talked about the importance of tracking and data. Like you, you cannot improve what you don't understand. And so having really good tracking in place, and there's, there's kind of no excuse not to have good tracking now with, when, you know, products like Amplitude are free for 15 million user events per month. So you're never like too early for that kind of tracking system. You, you can afford free and it's maybe a day to set up the instrumentation. I'll, I'll admit that I, I've run up against like, oh, we're, we're so busy building product. We don't have time to instrument the tracking systems. And, um, but, you know, that you should be able to make a case that flying blindly is, is not going to get you anywhere. And then, and then you know, the, the, the test learn process is, is really critical once you, once you understand value, once you have the tracking systems in place. Oh, the one other piece that I would say is that, um, you know, a key requirement is not just the the quantitative data side, but the qualitative side. So um, I I really learned this at LogMeIn. I had a uh, venture capitalist who kind of kept asking me, "When was the last time you talked to a customer?" And and I finally got frustrated and told him, "I don't care what they say. I care what they do. I track everything that they do. I I test everything. Try to change what they're doing." It's like, okay, that's nice. When was the last time you talked to a customer? I need you to talk to customers and so I, I kind of just, you know, humored him after a while. Just, yeah, you know, he's the investor. I'm going to make sure that the answer is always today if he, if he asks me. And an interesting thing happened that the more I talked to customers, the better my tests got, the, the more kind of plugged into the real world situation uh, was. And then I got much better at surveying. And, and so when you can bring together qualitative insights with quantitative data and testing to drive improvement, that's a pretty powerful combination. Yeah, say, uh, say, or I, I read, uh, or certainly this year, uh, a way to kind of, you know, get a pulse on your business is you speak to two people, your customers and your employees, right? And uh, yeah. if you're not doing either, then uh, you're certainly uh, missing out. Um, you, Especially if your employees are talking to your customers, then, yeah. you, then you can get a really good pulse. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and they should be. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, you, you'll be keynoting at SaaS Academy on Wednesday, the 14th of October. So really excited yep. about that. You'll be speaking about sustainable growth. Yep. Um, if it's possible, uh, you know, what, what is like at least one thing uh, that you know, delegates and attendees will get from listening to you, uh, watching you at that, at that talk? 
Yeah. I mean, I think I, I've, I've touched on a lot of what drives sustainable growth, but you know, one of the most important concepts that people should come away with is know what a North star metric is, figure out your North star metric and use that as your guide, as your, as you're executing that North star metric. If it's tied to how customers get value from your product and everything you're doing is about accelerating the amount of value that you're delivering across a growing user base, your growth will be sustainable. Obviously, if you're, if you're constrained by positive return on investment as, as what drives your customer acquisition, that's, that's a huge part of sustainability as well. Um, but I think, I think a lot of times people get caught up in sustainability as primarily being about sort of the economics of sustainability, but, you know, economics of sustainability that aren't focused on, on just maximizing the value that you deliver to your customers. You can have economically sustainable growth curve that was profitable all the way through, but then crashes because, because customers don't stay long-term retained. And then that's, that's just not a sustainably growing business. So it's, it's actually probably from a sustainable growth perspective, value plays more importance than economics, but economics are, are really critical to not, you know, if you're a VC backed business and you're just pouring money into unprofitable customer acquisition, then you're going to dilute yourself down to the point where you have, uh, you know, not much equity left in the business and you're reliant on, on venture capital. And when you try to wean yourself off of that, you may not be able to grow um, within the constraints of positive return on investment. So I, I, I prefer to have that constraint right from the beginning. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to uh, to watch and learn um, uh, on the 14th of October at Sasslock and Mia there. Final question, Sean, as we come to the end of the show, uh, we always ask our guests how they stay healthy and sane. Um, what's your way? <laughs> well, especially these days, uh, pandemic healthy and sane is a whole different ball of wax, but I... I do, I do meditation every single day. Um, that, that really kind of helps on the mental health side and just, I think it just helps me be a lot better at, at my job. And I just, I noticed my productivity for 10 minutes of meditation, my productivity way more than makes up for those 10 minutes. Um, and then on the kind of physical side, I am going to play soccer this afternoon, I guess in Europe football, but, um, I, I tend to play four days a week, uh, soccer and, surfing except i just uh messed up my shoulder so i haven't haven't been out for a little while so hopefully my shoulder will get better soon because surfing's uh super good on both the physical and mental side of things there's there's some zen that you get out on a surfboard that uh you can't it's almost impossible to get anywhere else awesome uh, and, and sean uh where can people find you uh online uh, so sean is um is my site that that kind of you know points to my uh, podcast, LinkedIn, you know, anyone who wants to connect with me, just say you heard me on this podcast and I'm, I'm happy to, to connect with anyone who reaches out from that. You know, biggest thing is normally what you don't generally have on a podcast like this is a bunch of vendors reaching out who then try to sell you all the time. That's, yeah. that's no fun, but, uh, yeah. And then check out the breakout growth podcast, um, and, uh, go practice all, all of those things. Awesome, awesome. Well, Sean, uh, super excited to see you uh, at Sasquamir on the 14th. And thanks so much for sharing uh, uh, so much knowledge uh, today with, uh, with the SaaS.com community. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate you having me on.
I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. If you found it useful, why don't you join us at SaaS Locomia, which is our next online conference. We're expecting around 4,000 SaaS founders, execs, and VCs from the EMEA region, 12th to the 15th of October. It's online, so just grab your laptop, your desktop, uh, and join us. Uh, it's gonna be a great event full of uh, lots of content, workshops, roundtables, networking, matchmaking, You've got to be there if you're in uh, in SaaS uh, in EMEA uh, or interested in the EMEA region and SaaS companies and, uh, and VCs within that region. So want to join us, don't forget to use our code for a podcast listeners, SaaS Revolution for 20% off your ticket. That's SaaS Revolution for 20% off your ticket. Hope to see you there.